Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and I'd like to welcome you to a very special banner lecture. And we often say this is a special banner lecture, but this one really is a special banner lecture. <laughs> I would, as usual, like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make this series possible. Well, now for today's program. It's been nearly half a century, which is hard to believe, since the United States was involved in what became known as the Vietnam War. The conflict lasted nearly a decade and claimed the lives of 58,000 Americans. Like all wars, Vietnam was a dramatic coming-of-age experience for many young people. It sharply divided Americans on the home front as no other issue had done in living memory. Well, the varied experiences of those caught up in the Vietnam War are the subjects of three exhibitions here at the VHS this summer. To honor those who served during the war, I'm happy to say that admission to the VHS will be free while these exhibitions are up. So that's now until the end of August. And again, if you, don't ha if you know people in your lives who are not VHS members, this is a great time for them to come in. One of the exhibitions is called Marking Time, Voyage to Vietnam. It's about the experiences of soldiers on a troop transport making the slow voyage across the Pacific to the war zone. There will be a gallery walk about it by curator Art Beltrone at noon on June 17th. The second exhibition is called Soul Soldiers, African Americans in the Vietnam Era. It's an especially poignant account of black Americans living through both the war and the civil rights movement. We'll have a gallery walk on this topic by our own Dr. Laurenette Lee at noon on July 8th. The third exhibition in this trilogy presents the story of our speakers, and they will tell it today. It's called Bring Paul Home, Phyllis Galanti and Vietnam War POWs. As the son of a career army officer, Paul Galanti grew up in many places, including Japan, Turkey, and France. He graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1962, began his flight training, and won his Navy wings the following year. Phyllis Galati, a native of Roanoke, also came from an Army family and grew up in West Germany, Turkey, and in several American states. She and Paul first met in Turkey in 1956, when both their fathers were stationed there. They married in 1963, after she graduated from the College of William and Mary. As a lieutenant commander, Paul left for Vietnam in November 1965, stationed aboard the USS Hancock, a World War II-era aircraft carrier on station in the South China Sea. Paul's plane was shot down on June 17, 1966. For nearly seven years, he would be a prisoner of war. During his imprisonment, Phyllis worked tirelessly to publicize the plight of POWs and secure their release. She was a leader in the National League of Families of American Prisoners and Missing in Southeast Asia. Her efforts and those of many others finally paid off when Paul and other POWs came home in February 1973. The story that Phyllis and Paul Galani will tell is a compelling one about a chapter in our long history as a nation. It's truly an all-American story of emotion, suffering, and ultimate redemption during a time of great crisis for our country. I'm grateful to the Galantis for giving their collection to the Virginia Historical Society 
and I'm proud that the VHS is making it possible for you to hear their story directly from them. So please join me in welcoming Phyllis and Paul Galanti, who will speak on the topic, for better or for worse, the journey of a POW and his wife. Thank you. I put the wings down there so I'd have something to push to make sure the slides woke up after. It's so great to see you all here. I see so many friends out in the audience. It's just wonderful. And uh, I think you're going to really like um, uh, our presentation. We've been working on it for a long time. I like to show off my technical skills with this. Uh, some of the things you'll see graphics tonight. And uh, Phyllis, of course, really, she does stuff. I just talk about them. <laughs> uh, but first, let's go ahead. I was very lucky as a young lad, got to fly something that not many people get to fly. Flight training. I'd spent my entire life wanting to do this. Uh, in fourth grade, I saw my first jet fighter flown by then-Captain Chuck Yeager, the top-secret YP-80 shooting star in 1947. And that's all I wanted to do. Um, I finally got there. I went to, did everything I had to do. I built model airplanes. I knew when I was uh, five years old, I knew what a, a B-24 was before I could count to 24. <laughs> and so I was finally there. I went to the Naval Academy, graduated, and our first, after a couple of months of ground school, uh, it was NAS Softly Field where I soloed in, in, uh, in primary in the T-34. <clears throat> then went to NAS Meridian, Mississippi in basic jet. Uh, NAS Chase Field, Texas, and the F-9 and F-11. Um, at the, and that time, the F-11 was being flown by the Blue Angels, so we thought we were pretty hot stuff. Uh, oh, yeah, I got married while I was in flight training, and more on that later, uh, mostly mostly from her, because I don't I was, I was, oh, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I'm already in trouble. This is the first time we've ever done anything like this. I got plowed back to Pensacola, and that was our first, uh, first place we lived together as a flight instructor, instru instructing in primary, and also flew the T-28 and the uh, SNB, the um, C-45 transport, just for proficiency. <clears throat> but then I got my orders to the A-4 Skyhawk out of Lemoore, California. It was called the Scooter, the Tinker Toy, a throwaway bomber, Heinemann's Hot Rod, it was designed um, as in the McDonald's age of being throw away. You didn't worry about it. If it broke, you just threw it away. It was the last, uh, it was at Lemoore, right in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley. After we were going through the valley, flat as a tabletop for about two hours, the first time I ever saw my new bride cry I was driving through Lemoore as we went by the feeder lots and sort of stuff. Um, Navy and Marine Corps' frontline attack airplane is really one of the best deals the military ever had. First flight was in 1953. The Navy finally got rid of it two years ago. Uh, the cost was less than a million dollars each, um, which seemed like a lot of money back then. Um, uh, the one, I, the version I flew, cost $850,000. Um, it's the last airplane the U.S. bought, wherein the pilot was smarter than the airplane. <laughs> The USS Hancock was almost as big a cl as clunker as the uh, um, the A4. I mean, the A4 didn't have anything automatic at all. It was uh, everything was the nothing digital. Everything was analog, and, and uh, Hancock was the same way. 
It was built in 1943, and this was 1966 when I was on it. It was almost as old as I was at the time, and um, it's a great ship. It's a dangerous, tiny relic. We'd had, uh, I got shot down on my 97th combat mission. Up to that point, our ship had lost 13 pilots killed, uh, five of them in combat and eight of them in shipboard operational accidents because the ship was just too small for jets. I deeply regret to confirm on behalf of the United States Navy that your husband, Lieutenant Paul Edward Golani, United States Navy, is missing in action in North Vietnam. On 17 June 1966, your husband successfully ejected from his aircraft after being hit by ground fire on pullout from bomb run. After being hit, Paul's aircraft was observed on fire and shortly thereafter, out of control. Paul made contact with flight leader on emergency radio and stated that he was surrounded by dogs and people with rifles. Five minutes after landing, Paul stated that there was no chance of rescuing him by helicopter. He said goodbye and further stated that he was going to destroy his radio. In the absence of evidence of your husband's fate, he will be continued in a missing in action status pending receipt and review of a full report of the circumstances surrounding his disappearance. You will now see a series of photos to give you a feel for our seven and a half year separation and what I did to pass the time. Details to follow. As Paul mentioned, uh, we were living in Lemoore, California, in the San Joaquin Valley, uh, which is where his squadron was stationed. The squadron joined the USS Hancock and left the San Francisco area um, in November of 1965. Uh, as the ship was going to do some exercises around Hawaii for several days before actually going to the South China Sea, some of the wives went to Hawaii to be with the with the guys just before they le left for the actual combat. So here you see two pictures of us in November 1965, the last time we saw each other. Uh, the one on the left is at the uh, Army Fort DeRussi in Honolulu, and the other one is aboard the USS Hancock, as you can see. Well, after Paul left, I decided that Rather than sit in California for his cruise, it would be a lot more fun to be back with my family in Virginia. My father had retired from the Army after 30 years, and he'd always wanted to restore an antebellum home. He found the home uh, near Blackstone, Virginia. It was, it's a farm with 215 acres uh, named Oakwood. So you, you see a picture of the house in and, and front of my, my mother and father. Uh, he, in addition to remodeling the home, he was raising black Angus cattle. So I had a wonderful time being with them while Paul was gone. The Navy does personal notification uh, in cases of death or um, captivity. Because Paul's mom and dad lived near Charlotte, uh, a large metropolitan area, the actual contact got to them before it got to me. 
So Paul's dad called my father person to person to, to say, don't think the worst when you see the Navy car driving up the driveway. So here you see a little spiral notebook uh, paper that my father had in his pocket. It starts off with three-inch copper pipe, three-inch to four-inch cast iron, <laughs> fiber and plastic. Then it goes to bad news, notify, Paul shot down over North Vietnam, landed safely, destroyed communication, immediately surrounded, carried as missing in action, Skyhawk. So by the time the Navy chaplain from Farmville could, could be notified, get in his uniform and get to us, um, I knew that Paul had made it to the ground alive. When the chaplain had notified us personally, he called the Bureau of Naval Personnel in Washington, and that's when the actual telegram was released. I was to return to Lemoore on Monday, and this was the previous Friday. On the left, you see a Richmond Times-Dispatch article that, that appeared um, two days after Paul was shot down. Um, one day after he was shot down. And these articles appeared all the time, but for some reason, this really struck me. It mentioned an A4 Skyhawk, and I got a funny feeling. Uh, it was quick and fleeting, but it turns out that that was the, the story of his actual incident. The picture on the right uh, appeared in the French communist newspaper L'Humanité in October of that same year. And it was gratifying to me because, I mean, he, he didn't look too happy, but I, he was not in a flight suit, so I knew that he had made it into the prison system. So now my decision was what to do. Do I return to California? Do I go to graduate school? Do I get a job? I decided to move to Richmond and get a job. And I worked at Reynolds Metals Company for six years. I lived at the Hamlet Apartments on Staples Mill Road, but returned to Blackstone to be with my parents each weekend. In the fall of 1967, I received a call from Navy Intelligence uh, and was told that Paul was going to be featured on NBC's Huntley Brinkley news broadcast. And, and they sent me the still photos taken from the film that the East Germans had taken. The magazine actually came out October 20th, 1967. My father died in 1969 at McGuire Veterans Hospital. That same year is when the families started speaking out. We decided, you know, just those of us scattered all over the country, decided that people really didn't know what was going on. They did not know that we weren't receiving mail, that the men weren't um, receiving medical treatment, the camps weren't being inspected. So we decided we had to educate the American people. And we coordinated our efforts. Never in history had military families done such a thing. 
were usually in the background being supportive, but never up front speaking out. We formed the National League of Families of American Prisoners and Missing in Southeast Asia, and we were incorporated in 1970. We had an office in Washington, D.C. with a national coordinator. We had a coordinator in each, each state. We were asked who our public relations firm was, which was really a riot because we were winging it and just making it up as we went along. <laughs> Communication is a huge thing, both ways. At first, we tried to send letters through the Red Cross, but that just wasn't working. In its infinite wisdom, the enemy found another way to get to us. We had to use a group called the Committee of Liaison as couriers. This was a group of American communists or communist sympathizers who traveled freely between North Vietnam and the United States. There are some familiar names. Rennie Davis, Abby Hoffman, the fathers Daniel and Philip Berrigan, and others. Cora Weiss was our principal contact. The letters had to be only on this form that you see, there were six lines, and we were directed to write only about health and family. When I sent a letter to Paul, I had to send it to the Committee of Liaison in New York. One of these people hand-carried it to Hanoi. The letters from the POWs arrived the same way. The Committee of Liaison would bring them out of Hanoi, enclose an anti-U.S. letter, and then send it on to the family. And this was the only way that mail was moving. It really galled us to use this system, but we had to. In the six years and eight months that Paul was held captive, I got 23 letters from him, and he got 15 from me. There was no pattern. One time I went two and a half years without a letter. The most dramatic letter delivery was on Christmas Eve of 1971. The Defense Department heard that the Committee of Liaison had brought a group of letters into the country. My casualty officer, who was the head of Navy recruiting in Virginia, um, tried to contact me at my, my apartment. Um, I wasn't there but he got in touch with my neighbor who lived below me and she had a key to my apartment. She let him in. He found the letter, the envelope from the Committee of Liaison and he drove to Blackstone where she had told him I would be. My mother and I were not at the farm so we went into the fire station and this is a wonderful thing about a small town. You start asking around, where might Mrs. Eason and Phyllis be? And they found us in, a, in another farm, uh, a friend of my mother's, for a, a lovely Christmas Eve dinner. And he brought me the envelope 
which included two letters and two cards. And I will always be grateful to this wonderful man for giving up his Christmas Eve and really pursuing this like he did. We were allowed to send packages, every two, one every two months, and I usually sent things to help Paul pass the time. Cards, playing cards, paper, colored pencils, crossword puzzles, and things like that. I had tremendous help from the, the guys in the mail room at Reynolds Metals Company. They helped me pack the, the boxes so that they wouldn't be overweight with a minimum of packing uh, that it would get through safely and not be refused because it was overweight. This is the, the office we had set up at Channel 12 who gave us a trailer to use as our office for the letter writing campaign. Uh, these are four volunteers and you can see that the letters are coming in. The, this picture is my friend Connie Richardson and she and I are holding a poster with Paul's picture on it and uh, Tom Bliley when he was then mayor. This was, we, we were really anticipating um, starting our letter writing campaign. And on the far right of this picture, the far left of this picture is Connie Richardson, this is her sister-in-law, me of course, and Judy Clifford uh, in Washington at, at the beginning of the actual first meeting of the National League of Families. The two women on the ends, Connie Richardson and Judy Clifford, contacted me when they first saw me speaking on TV in 1969. And they just were there the whole time after that. Um, they did everything I did. They were speaking as much as I did. Um, they, had, they were both married. They had seven children between them. But they were just always, always working on this issue. In 1970, Ross Perot came to town. We had heard him speak in Washington about a campaign, a letter-writing campaign that, that he had sponsored in Dallas. Connie and Judy and I approached him at that meeting and asked if he would come to Richmond to help us do a similar thing here. He agreed. He told me to get the 100 most prominent businessmen in, Washington, in uh, Richmond, get them together for a luncheon, and he would come and speak. So um, that happened. Here we are in front of Channel 12, and we did an interview on Channel uh, 12 also that night. The picture on the left, left is Joe Antonelli, who was the chairman of our letter writing campaign, Wilma Ray, who was a wonderful receptionist at Reynolds when I was there, and Eddie Casco, who was then manager of the Boston Red Sox, very good friend of Joe Antonelli, so that's why he, he's in the picture. Um, the aluminum bin, it says, bring Paul home. The Paul is in white, so it's hard to see. Reynolds was fantastic to me. Mr. Richard Reynolds, the chairman, wanted to know each time I got a letter. There were posters in every Rich Reynolds location. There was an insert in the paycheck of every Reynolds Metals Company employee in the country. There were aluminum, of course, letter drums, 
in every Richmond Reynolds location. There were special cover menu, covers for the menus in the executive dining room. When I returned from a Vermont ski trip, I was greeted by a window display in the headquarters of Reynolds Metals Company. There was a mannequin in a flight suit and helmet, and a mannequin and POW garb in a simulated cell. Our letter writing campaign gathered 452,000 letters from the people of the Richmond area. It was the most successful letter writing campaign in the United States. Ten of us Richmonders went to Stockholm with the letters. There was a photo of our arrival in Stockholm with 750,000 letters because we also carried with us 300,000 from Northern Virginia. In Stockholm, we met with the U.S. Ambassador, the International Red Cross, the Swedish foreign minister, and the North Vietnamese consulate. In 1971, I addressed a joint session of the Virginia General Assembly arranged by then Lieutenant Governor J. Sergeant Reynolds, who tragically died later that year. I did things I never could have imagined myself doing. First of all, um, speaking out in public to anyone about anything. I used to be very, very shy. Two, the other extreme, placing a call to Gus Hall, then the chairman of the American Communist Party. In 1972, three wives went to Paris for 10 days. The occasion for our trip was a meeting at Versailles, 800 communist delegates from around the world, and it was called an International Peace Conference on Indochina. I did things and went places that were out of a spy novel. I met with the Viet Cong, the Path at Lao, the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, and other U.S. delegates. Madeleine Rifaux, whom you see in both of these pictures, had interviewed Paul in 1966 for her paper, L'Humanité. So I decided to try to contact Madeleine Rifaux while I was in Paris. I called the paper. She wasn't there. I called the next day. They said she was sick and gave me her home phone number. I called and left a message. My French was better then than it is now. She returned the message and met with me in the hotel cocktail lounge for three hours the next night. And she gave me a copy of her book, which you see on the left, in North Vietnam, written under the bombs, is the title. I tell you, it was downright weird to meet with a woman who had seen Paul since I had. On the left is a picture of me with Admiral Thomas Moore, who was then Chief of Naval Operations, 
who was a great supporter and one of my very, very favorite people. And then on the right, you see the Oval Office with Sybil Stockdale, President Nixon, um, Dr. Kissinger, and myself. Three of us were elected by the National League of Families to seek a meeting with the president. And that meeting did take place in the Oval Office on May 15th of 1972. We later learned that the harbors of Haiphong were mined that day, something we had advocated in the meeting. Later that year, I appeared, I mean, later that summer, I appeared on 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace. We, the families decided that since this was a politi political year and since this seemed to be going on and on, we really needed a new approach. We needed to take a political stand, a nonpartisan political stand. So we had uh, committees in each state working on addressing all of the candidates to the conventions, you know, local and, and uh, the state conventions and the national conventions. In that uh, capacity, I went to both national conventions in Miami. Um, and we did all the things that, that people working on an issue do, um, trying to buttonhole delegates, telling them all about the POWs and what was actually happening. And we had a wonderful bumper sticker, POWs, MIAs, dying to vote in 1972. Because this was the third presidential, presidential election in captivity for some. In October of 1972, I was elected chairman of the board of the National League of Families. Darlene Sandler, whom you see with me in the photo, was the wife of U.S. Air Force Major Mitchell Sadler, missing in action over Laos, and she was elected vice chairman. This photo is the two of us at a press conference. In December, I appeared on the Today Show with Frank McGee. In mid-December of 1972, USB-52s began bombing Hanoi. And I wasn't worried for the POWs. I knew that we knew where they were. So I wasn't, that wasn't my fear. I just thought, this is prolonging the war. It's just going to go on and on. It, it was a really tough time. December 31st, 1972, I was with my mother in church in Blackstone. And uh, during the service, there was a soprano who sang a gorgeous solo. And I was just moved to go up to her afterwards, find her in the choir room after the service, and just tell her how much I appreciated her solo. And she said, oh, Phyllis, I'm so glad to see you. I woke up in the middle of the night one night last week thinking of you. I couldn't get you off my mind. And she said, I asked the Lord to show me what he wanted me to know. And she said, I opened my Bible to Jeremiah 31, 16 and 17, which reads like this. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is reward for your work 
says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your children, says the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. And three weeks later, President Nixon announced there would be a peace agreement. That was January 23rd. On January the 26th, I went to the White House and met with President Nixon, Dr. Kissinger, and others. The peace agreement was actually signed January 27th in Paris. On January 28th, the board of the League of Family was, was having lunch in the Army-Navy Club in Washington. Representatives from the State Department and the Defense Department came to give us a list of those to be released. Darlene's husband's name was not on the list. Jim Seahorn was elated. His son Jim's name was on the list. The family had never heard. Jenny Connell's husband, JJ, died in captivity. It was a bittersweet day. Paul's name was on the list. He was released on February the 12th. And boy, did I have some surprises in store. I, uh, <clears throat> a couple of things I just was, had, came to my mind as Phyllis was talking. One, when she was, that picture of her and Connie talking to uh, Tom Bliley standing there, what she didn't tell was about the, at that time they were building the Richmond City Hall. It was the only tall building in that part of town, so you could see the skeleton coming in from I-64 or from I-95 south or going, going north or south. And so they wanted to put a sign around that skeleton saying, bring Paul home. So they went to see Tom Bliley and said, uh, Mr. Mayor, we'd really like to put a sign up there. He said, well, you know, a great politician. He said, Tom, uh, Tom said, you know, I'd, I agree with you in principle and everything else, but, you know, if we do it for you, we're going to have to do it for everybody. So we can't put that sign up. So one of Phyllis's friends went over to see Blackie Moscone, the foreman of the project. <laughs> and, and they don't have too many people in Richmond who can build skyscrapers. So Blackie Moscone was from New York, and he went over and says, and he wanted to talk to him. He says, you just want to put a sign up there? We'll put the sign up. The mayor wants to take it down. He can go up and take it down. <laughs> And the other was the picture of Phyllis speaking to the joint session of the Virginia General Assembly. That was done at the behest of uh, Senator Ed Willey, who was probably the most powerful man ever in the history of Virginia. And nobody will ever have that much power again, but he had more, he made Thomas Jefferson and George Washington look like uh, half-milers. <laughs> but Senator Willey told me when she did that, she was the only two non-elected officials had ever addressed the joint session of the Virginia General Assembly, Robert E. Lee and her. <clears throat> so, so, much, so much for this shy bride that I left. Um, meanwhile, back in North Vietnam, when you last saw me, I was leaping out of my airplane going 500 knots. Uh, the parachute ripped open, tore a bunch of panels out of it. Uh, I got violently um, uh, jerked around from the opening shot, going from 500 knots to 15 in about uh, half of a second. And, um, and I got shot coming down in the parachute. All these bullets were flying everywhere. Came down in a big hump, uh, uh, clump at the bottom of a hill, and uh, uh, was captured almost immediately. 
Uh, none of most of us were prepared to die. You don't. That's what the flight pay was for. We got a hundred dollars a month extra to uh, fly airplanes, <laughs> and and we. But nobody is prepared to take, uh, be taken prisoner. Um, the welcoming committee was not exactly like the one you get from the Chamber of Commerce here in Richmond. They they weren't really happy. Of course, I just uh, less than a half a mile away. I've been dropping bombs on some railroad cars right in their neighborhood, <clears throat> and so they weren't real happy. Got beat up pretty bad. They took my flight suit, my pistol, and tied me to a tree and lined up like a firing squad, and I kept looking around, wondering if I'd see the bullet that killed me as they were doing that. They um, had an interrogation. Uh, within a day or so, a, a fellow came, and he didn't speak English, but he had a pointy talk. He had Vietnamese on one side, English on the other, and he'd point at the Vietnamese, and I'm supposed to be able to read that and answer the question. And he said, what's your name? And I told him. And he said, what's your rank? I told him. What's your uh, date of birth? I told him. What's your serial number? I told him that. And he said, are you married? I said, I can't answer that question. And they have persuasive uh, tactics over there to help you change your mind. Or, or as, as the communists were wont to say, uh, we want you to correct your thinking, which sounds interesting. It sounds sort of like what's going on in a certain other country I can think of right now as uh, they're we're, we're sort of heading toward the, the, down the same path as North Vietnamese. This was awful. Uh, we hated it. I had a, a session like this about every quarter to train, keep the guards trained up. And we used to say they sent them to hate school and they'd come back and, and wrap us up to make, make us violate one part of the code of conduct doing it. Um, it's, um, it was awful. But it's a whole lot. It's not. Uh, Waterboarding is, has no comparison to that, by the way. <clears throat> the worst, one of the worst events I ever had over there was being kept awake. I was awake for, heard every single chime of the Westminster chime clock across from the prison for 10 straight days, every 15 minutes. Uh, if I'd fall asleep, the guards would open the window. It was freezing cold out in January. They'd throw water in uh, and get soaked. And I was in my underwear um, on this stool. The temperature in, in the room was about 40 degrees. Uh, but communications were what kept us going, and particularly in solitary. I was in solitary for about a year, and it, the solitary was, um, um, it was awful to go through that. If you could just have communication just a little bit with an American once a day or so, and we did it by tapping on the walls. We did it by using um, uh, sign language, tapping, coughing, whatever. We kept in contact with each other, and it's really what saved us uh, in Hanoi. A week after I arrived in Hanoi, they took 50 of us. Of course, we were all, I was in solitary at the time. Took me right out of interrogation into uh, this thing and paraded us right through the streets of Hanoi with 500,000 people yelling and screaming, throwing things. After we got past the camera where these pictures were taken, they turned the crowd loose on us, and, and several people got beat up pretty severely that night. Very quickly, as a series of bullets, uh, this is my six years and eight months, 2,432 days in prison. The filthy cells were typically uh, seven by seven of concrete, wood beds, a, a rusty bucket for a toilet. The windows were boarded up, a bare light bulb burned 24-7. Leg irons were on some beds, like the ones in Williamsburg with they shackle your legs in. The windows were boarded up, rats, snakes, geckos, solitary confinement. Uh, uh, not quite like Gitmo, in case you're interested in inhumane in treatment. The food was pumpkin soup and rice, 
uh, pumpkin soup and bread or rice and uh, for six months and they switched to green soup which is like colored greens in water with rice uh, I only got I only weighed one time when I was in Hanoi about three months after I was captured and my weight was 50 kilograms which is 110 pounds um, Phyllis says I should go back on that diet <laughs> <clears throat> Our doctors in Pensacola estimated it's about 700 calories a day. Uh, at church in solitary cells during the first years and then services later when we got after uh, the Sante raid in 1970 when we got some big rooms. It was a major morale boost. And what happened, we would, uh, the senior officer would thump three times on the wall with his elbow. You could hear it all over the building. And everybody would stand up and we'd say the Lord's Prayer. Uh, there was no ACLU chapter in Hanoi, by the way. And we'd stand up, uh, we'd stand up and say the Lord's Prayer, and then the Pledge of Allegiance, and we sat down quick because they could hear us all talking, saying the same thing, and we weren't supposed to be communicating. So, it was uh, if you got caught, it was bad news. The uh, um, church service, um, I didn't realize there was a difference between the Army and Navy until I got a roommate and found out that the Navy guys are all facing to the north because that's the Great Circle route. The closest distance to the U.S. is over the North Pole. Air Force guys were facing east or west, depending on which coast they came from. Uh, uh, many had various types of revelation. Mine, mine came in January 1969 during a very bad time. When I, that's when I was on the stool for that 10 days. And uh, it, it did not seem like hallucinations. The doctors think that's what it was, but I don't agree with them. Um, I kept having these visions, and finally, I just going crazy, and... Uh, uh, and I was on that stool, and, and just all I wanted to do was get off the stool and, and sleep, just do something. And so I started praying. Um, well, I got caught communicating. That's what I was on the thing for. And solitary for 10 days, uh, hallucinating spirit came through my wall. And it just it looked like Jesus coming through the wall, standing right in the room with me and said, Paul, you're going to be okay. And that's it. And he just vaporized I hadn't seen Star Trek. I didn't know what that was, but it, I sort of de, it sort of dematerialized and disappeared. An hour later, the guard came in, got me to go up, took me into the camp commander's uh, interrogation cell and said, you must behave, you must obey the camp regulations, and took me to a cell where I had a roommate for the first time in about a year. We were treated as criminals, no Geneva Convention. Um, uh, it was awful, awful treatment. Uh, we, we treated people that we captured... Uh, <clears throat> far more leniently than this. Um, communication is the key to survival. Uh, punishment for trying to communicate was 30 days strapped in the leg irons with your hands handcuffed behind your back. They never broke down our calm, though. We never, uh, there were a few people, we had trouble getting to communicate, but we eventually learned, taught them how to communicate, and once they got in the system, they were a lot better off. This is our TAP code. Uh, it was... Um, it's imperative to know this. I got so I could tap pretty fast. And um, uh, if you can, I don't know if you can see it back there or not, but uh, A, letter A, B, C, D, E, um, five across, five down. If you tap, um, tap, tap, first row, first column, it goes like this. First row, second column is B, letter B. I'm testing my coordination here. Um, right there, letter B. C would be F would be second row, first column, or G would be second row, second column, 
we would call uh, <clears throat> call a room up next to us by doing the old. And every single American ever born or naturalized knows what the response to that is. <laughs> the Vietnamese, if they were trying to spy on us, if we'd go, they would tap back <laughs> and wonder why there was no more tapping. Um, I'm going to tap out <laughs> Virginia Historical Society. <laughs> I'm going to actually just tap out VHS and the tap code. We call them up. They tap back. And um, VHS is. And that's it. We were very fortunate. This was not a volunteer. None, one of us volunteered to be in there. But we managed, the North Vietnamese, unluckily for them, managed to congregate some of the best leaders our military has ever produced. Commander Jim Stockdale was a Navy Air Group commander when he was shot down. and He made captain right after he got shot down. But he was, you know, he was our inspirational leader. What they didn't realize is they captured a gent that's as close to a... A, a naval philosopher, as you could get in our thing, he had a um, the very highest class. It was Jimmy Carter's class. He stood way higher than Jimmy Carter, which is not surprising. <laughs> <clears throat> and he uh, um, uh, was also had a master's from MIT in aeronautical engineering. Taught academics at the Navy Test Pilot School, and was working very close to his PhD in philosophy from Stanford at the time he went overseas. This was quite a man. Uh, Jeremiah Denton, classmate from Annapolis, same same thing. Bill Lawrence, who retired, it was a superintendent of the Naval Academy when I was on the staff up there later. Uh, another guy who was closest to him, MacArthur, we, as we've ever had at Navy. He was uh, third in academics, captain of the football teams, a brigade commander in, in military, and also uh, started the current honor system like it is now. Uh, and the Air Force was just as good. Uh, Robbie Reiser had been an ace in Korea. He'd flown in World War II, but ace in Korea. Uh, was on the cover of Time magazine three weeks before he got shot down, which is unfortunate. And uh, <clears throat> Bud Day's a Medal of Honor recipient. And uh, Sam Johnson, who's still in Congress, had flown with the Thunderbirds in the Air Force. We had some incredible leaders in that camp, and they kept us going under some awfully adverse conditions. Uh, <clears throat> Sante Raid, November 1970, changed everything. Uh, the Army Special Forces had volunteered for this, who volunteered for this mission were told they had a 50-50 chance of getting killed. Now, I'm not that good in statistics, but I know those aren't really good odds, and yet they did it to get us out. Came in, executed the raid perfectly, got out, and we weren't there. We'd been moved, but it scared the North Vietnamese. They panicked, moved everybody from about 20 different outlying camps into Hanoi, and forced to put us in big rooms, so we actually had, uh, uh, after, for me, at that time, it was four and a half years, actually had uh, uh, friends close by, people you could just talk to without having to tap through the wall. <clears throat> the rooms were 60 by 20, and we had about 50 POWs in each one of them, which is, that's not, you know, that's a lot of people for a small room, but we weren't complaining. Uh, we taught classes. Our enlisted men, uh, three of them, uh, validated 120 semester hours from classes they had in our courses. This is with no books, no pencils, no audio-visual stuff, nothing, just 
hand to mouth, including memorizing languages. Um, and um, I taught French and learned Spanish and German. Uh, had math through differential equations. One fellow validated college chemistry, never having seen a college chemistry book, learning how to do chemical equations in his head. Uh, the bombing started again, uh, big panic. They moved half of us up to the Chinese border in 1972, and we were there for, until the end of the war. No electricity. Uh, it was miserable. We called it Dog Patch. Some of us wanted to call it Camp Cobra. Uh, we arrived in the middle of the night, pitch black, feeling our way blindly through these buildings and all kinds of little narrow corridors and and things screwing around on our feet. And then went into the, so we figured out there were eight little cells and there were two piles of boards at the bottom of each one of them for our beds. And so we finally figured out where to sleep and we lay down. In the middle of the night, this blood curdling scream came out, followed by whap 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 whap, and and something something it comes up the uh, pajama leg of one of the guys. And the next morning, we waited for the sun to come up, and it never came up. The windows, there were no windows in this place. One brick was out on the far side, and when the sun finally got up high enough, there was enough light coming through that little brick hole uh, that they held this thing up, and it was a six-foot-long cobra. <laughs> so we didn't sleep too well for a couple of nights after that. Uh, ended for us in 70, uh, 73, following the Christmas uh, bombings with B-52s. Phyllis had just given up hope. When those B-52 started, that was the worst time of the whole time for her. And at Hanoi, we'd known those missions had been planned since 1965, the blockading of the harbor, putting the B-52s on Hanoi, and they finally did it. Um, as it turns out, 60 days later, we were home. Um, time to go home. All good things must come to an end. <laughs> Bad things, too. Three's in. This is um, in the military. They have a missing man formation. You see a flight of four airplanes will fly over a gravesite or whatever they're doing. And number three pulls out of the formation and goes straight up doing doing rolls to symbolize the missing man. Uh, we were the guys coming home. So the, our website that I do for the POWs is called Three's In. I am really proud of that little piece of uh, film. Uh, the fellows who put it together, I do a little animated graphic myself for our website. It was awful. And they said, you've got a great website, Galani, except your graphics stink. It's going to fix this up. <laughs> the machine they did that with is the same kind that Steven Spielberg used to make dinosaurs. Those are uh, 4A4s joining up. They're flying over Richmond at approximately 800 knots, which is about 300 knots faster than the A4 would really fly. So it's happy times. Uh, NAS Norfolk, 2.35 a.m., Miss Valentine's Day by two and a half hours. And uh, first time together in uh, seven and a half years. And you notice Phyllis doesn't have, the, her arms aren't that long, but I had a 28-inch waist, which is the reason that arm wraps around. Uh, I'm not sure where that uniform is now, but I'm not, I don't think either of our boys could have worn that after they were 10 years old. First time together in seven and a half years. Uh, a lot of things happened. Uh, Ross Perot, concerned about the Sante Raiders not getting thanked for raiding that camp after they risked their lives to do that. I said, you know, I bet some guys that were in that Sante camp would like to say thank you to him. So he arranged for us to be in San Francisco. He got John Wayne to uh, 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 get some entertainment together. We had Bob Hope, Red Skelton. I said, I don't know how much it would have cost. The only entertainer we didn't know was Clint Eastwood and because <laughs> cause Dirty Harry came out when we were in jail. So... Uh, um, 
Phyllis and I were sitting at Ross Perot's table, and he, as soon as we sat down, Phyllis, he came over and got uh, Phyllis's wine and said, Paul, you mind if I borrow Phyllis for a minute? And, and, and I said... I said, oh, no, uh, Ross, it's your party. Yeah, go ahead. So, so he took her and sat her down next to John Wayne, and they came back to the table, a little grin on his face, said, Duke's wife is sick. She couldn't make it tonight. You reckon Phyllis will mind having to sit with him? <laughs> no, I'm sure she'd much rather sit with me. <laughs> and then in July 4th, 1976, Her Majesty was visiting the Commonwealth of Virginia to see how the colonials were doing in the 200 years since... Uh, the, the late unpleasantness at Yorktown. And um, and so Phyllis wanted to go to it. I said, Phyllis, I don't want to go to that thing. It's going to be hot and miserable. And so now we're going to go. And so one of our friends who worked with the Secret Service got us tickets right in the front row, right outside the mansion at Monticello. And so we're standing out there, and this gent came up and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Governor Godwin would like you to come with me. And so I said, well, we're right, you know, and took us right out of this, these gorgeous place we had to stand took us around back to this little shed and we're out there and we hear the uh this big cheer goes up out in front of the mansion as the limousine arrives and the queen gets out and does her little queenly wave and 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 uh goes in has a spot of tea with the colonials inside and went out the back door and was waving to the the general assembly they're all herded in with a big rope and if they moved the secret service was going to shoot them went over to the, then they came over to where we're standing well you look at that picture very closely i did not want to go there so i was doing doing this italian trick that we italian men do to our women if we don't like what they're doing to us i wore the tackiest clothes i could wear <clears throat> i had i had the uh this blazer i know it looks like spike jones one of his little it was black and yellow and had this this and it had these blue pants that had uh big bell bottoms and just and, and this god awful hand painted tie that had little British World War One fighters on it, and we're standing there. And, and as the Queen comes up, Governor Godwin said, "Your Majesty, this is Commander Galani. He was a prisoner in North Vietnam for nearly seven years." She said, "Seven years, really?" And she went on. And Prince Philip came up and said, "I say, those are SE fives on your tie." <laughs> So they don't remember anything about that trip except this crazy dude that was standing there with these SC5s on his necktie. <laughs> and then uh, we had a couple of happy occasions in our life. Uh, uh, Jamie and Jeff. Jamie was born in 75. I'm giving your secret away, Jamie. And uh, Jeff was born in 78. And uh, they're two fine lads. Um, they don't look like that anymore. <laughs> they're, they're in the third row standing back there turning beet red right now that I'm calling attention to them. Um, this is 1966 on the Hancock flight deck. Those are the the guy, three guys I flew with. They were with me when I was shot down. The last uh, Lou Chatham fellow on the left was the, our flight lead. And the last guy I talked to on the radio, and the conversation was in Phyllis's telegram. Uh, they're still very close. They restored an airplane just like mine that's at the Virginia Aviation Museum now. And as the uh, on the occasion of dedicating it, Ross Perot again came back up to help us. And uh, it was out at the Virginia Air National Guard. And the same four guys got together in front of that airplane, uh, standing in the same place. On the left is Lou Chatham, who's uh, retired as a rear admiral, uh, ex-Blue Angel, one of my favorite people. Next to him is Ron Sinninger, who ended up being a, still as a judge <clears throat> in uh, Portland. <clears throat> my, my flight lead, Don Gregg, is uh, um, 
the tall one in that picture, uh, <clears throat> retires a Navy captain and also as a United Airline captain. And there's me in that tacky yellow, tacky uh, leather jacket. <laughs> the, air, the airplane's an exact replica of the one I flew in, and uh, uh, except it looks a lot better than any of the planes in our squadron. <clears throat> Finally, well, I got, you know, people say yeah, it's really a horrible experience, Kalani. See, but my Marine friends don't think that. We have any Marines in here? Besides Dr. I see Dr. Heilman down there. He's a. Uh, <laughs> Um, my Marine friends said, Galani, you're the luckiest SOB in the history of the Navy. You're in the Navy 20 years and only had to make one cruise. <laughs> so, and, and most of that was overseas shore duty. <laughs> but ser seriously, uh, Dr. Levengood, Paul, we're, uh, we're honored to present our story here as part of the Banner Lecture Series. This Virginia Historical Society is a great institution. I mean, I have uh, attended more great things. If, you, if you're not familiar with it at all, get one of the membership brochures and join, because they have the best publication that's put out by any, it's not a government agency, maybe that's why. Uh, <laughs> but it's absolutely incredible, and um, it's just a great place. Uh, we're happy for the freedoms we enjoy as Americans, and too many take for granted. I, uh, one of the things that really bothers us, POWs as a group, and I hate to speak for because we're, we're all individuals, is when I hear Americans complain about how bad things are, as far as I'm concerned, they ought to just go over to Hanoi and just stick around for a while, and it, it's a great attitude changer. Uh, we're happy that life's been good to us. Uh, we've got two fine boys. Um, and, as I sometimes need to remind myself, everyone's like, uh, there's no such thing as a bad day when there's a doorknob on the inside of the door. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We went a little bit over. If anybody, please have a seat. If anybody wants, has, can stick around for questions. We'll stay up here and answer them as long as you want. If you have to leave, feel free to do so. You won't hurt our feelings. We, we uh, know it is. But for the questions, we're going to have two microphones, one on each aisle. Just wave your hands and the, and the microphone will come up so everybody can hear the questions. In the background, we're going to run just the, the slides we showed in this um, thing just in the background so they have something more entertaining to watch than us. Please, any questions? Okay. Um, I know this is a little bit off topic, but I grew up with an Army pilot who was like one of my best friends in the world. He went missing on December the 9th in 1972, and there's never been any accountability. And I believe that there are still a number of them, and several years ago when the communists began to try to exterminate the Montagnards, some of us were concerned that there was a purpose to what they were doing. I wonder if you'd like to comment on the ones we haven't brought back, and you probably have special knowledge anyway. There are, I think, about 1,500 MIAs still uh, unaccounted for. Uh, Uncle Sam's, we've got teams, we've got three, two or three teams over there investigating grave sites, 
And um, is this thing working? Can you all hear me? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, I don't. I don't think we left anybody behind. There's a, all kinds of conspiracy, conspiracy theater, uh, theorists. There's there was no secret POW camp under Ho Chi Minh's tomb. There have been several conspiracy books. There are two wacko ex-congressmen that have been carrying this thing for years, and that these guys really are wacko. Both the Billy Hendon's one of them, and the other guy's from Brooklyn named Le Boutier. and and they've just came out with a big book. I'm getting all kinds of emails about it. Said it's baloney. Everything in there is fallacious. So there's absolutely no way uh, that we would not have known about another camp. We knew about guys, uh, CIA guy who was kept buried up to his neck uh, for uh, almost a year in uh, in DNBN Fu. They put him with us to come back, and other ones. We think they killed people over there. We think they tortured them to death. But we don't think anybody was alive when we came home. So uh, there are others who think differently, and, and, uh, and there are people who think it's a big conspiracy that we did it deliberately, and I, I just can't believe that. The CIA uh, is, is, has a ton of agents in it who are ex-military, and there's no way any ex-military uh, official would stand by, would cover something like that up. As you know, in Washington, they don't have any secrets up there. The more top secret it is, the faster the dime gets dropped to the Washington Post so they can put it on their front page. So I think if there were anything, uh, every single hint that there might be somebody there is thoroughly investigated. We have our own special forces guys, language people that go in and try and track it down. The fact is they've ex they brought back a 1,000 people who were, were dead, and they, you know, sometimes they identify through one tooth in a crash site because that's all that's left after 40 years. Um, it, it's absolutely incredible. But anyway, Uncle Sam's gone to unbelievable uh, uh, efforts to, to, to find this out. And, and so anyway, I, that, that's what I feel. Phyllis, do you? Thank you. Is Mrs. Stockdale still alive? And if so, how is she doing? She is. Her mind is as sharp as ever. She does suffer from Parkinson's, and so... Speaking is very hard for her, um, so we communicate by email. She lives in Coronado, California, the same home her family has owned f since the 60s. Paul, uh, did uh, they let you all know about people like Jane Fonda and the, those folks who were friendly to the North Vietnamese while you were in prison? Yeah, we couldn't help it. They they'd, uh, brag about them all the time. Uh, you know, a, a lot of these names, Stokely Carmichael is one of the Black Panthers, and uh, they're all communists. And that whole anti-war movement, these, these guys were, they come over, uh, uh, Tom Hayden, Jane Fonda's ex, you know, that's, uh, I thought he was really kind of dumb uh, for, for marrying her. And, and, uh, he went up a little bit when she left him. It's, it's, uh, but anyway, um, they, they all were either communists or they, they talked like that because when they refer to him, I can I don't speak Vietnamese, but when Tom Hayden was in town, you'd hear him say, Dong Chi Hayden on the radio. It would just come leaping out. And Dong Chi in Vietnamese is comrade. That, in a communist country, that only means one thing. So I think, and there's a few things coming out about that, but that whole anti-war movement, a lot of it was festered by, by communists um, they called it rabble-rousing back then. I, I think they call it community organizing now. Uh, can, can you relate, uh, where was uh, uh, 
Uh, Senator McCain, when he was a prisoner, was he in your area? Uh, we were in the same camp three or four times. I was never in the same cell with him. We had and we only had those big cells toward the end of the war. Uh, he was in the, the cell with a. Um, uh, they were the we call them the hardcore. They were the, um, the ones the communists either uh, um, they couldn't do anything with. He was a uh, die-hard resistor and uh, and it was very as well very well liked by our group. He usually comes to our our reunions at least puts in an appearance and it comes through and waves at the group and lays a little Washington wisdom on us and, you know, and, and <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, uh, but anyway, he's, he's really a good guy and we've been friends. I helped him on his campaign a couple of times uh, <laughs> for what that's worth. Hi, Paul. Um, I was just curious if you ever received any letters we wrote to you in Viet while you were in Vietnam. Uh, I got about 15 from Phyllis, 10 of them the day we left Hanoi. The, the newest one was a year and a half old. And uh, uh, the, the letters we got, I mean, we moved up to that camp near the Chinese border toward the end. One of the, uh, uh, was at Christmas time, and you know, the Christmas bombings and down in Hanoi, the things were lots of fireworks and stuff. And of course, we didn't we didn't hear any of that. Uh, we knew they were screaming and yelling, and they they play a battery-powered radio for us occasionally. We could hear them yelling about the bombing. Um, but the uh, um, uh, letters, um, what they had, the camp commander. First of all, when Ho Chi Minh dies, when our treatment. It didn't get good by any stretch, but the, the torture stopped and the really bad treatment. There weren't too many people in solitary. Uh, we, we had, the interrogation stopped. And so this, we go up to this Chinese border camp, and the camp commander uh, was calling us in for interrogation, but they were good guy interrogations. They'd come in and they'd you know, they were, have cookies and tea and a cigarette. And they said, these cigarettes, God, they, they pegged Philip Morris's meter. I, we didn't have to fight North Vietnam, they're all going to die of lung cancer. <laughs> and the um, um, and but one guy, Everett Alvarez, got called in for an interrogation, and they gave him. So we allow you to get a letter from home. It's from his mother, telling him his wife had gone to Mexico and divorced him. Another, another guy got a letter. Said we allow you to, on the occasion of your Christmas, we allow you to get a letter from home. And and, and they gave this guy this letter, and it's got pictures in it. Here's a picture of his wife getting married again in a mini skirt with a guy who's got sideburns down here. Now, we went overseas in the ages of leave it to beaver. You know, just flat tops and no sideburns. And so this guy, and it, there, there's his kids. Obviously, they're a lot bigger than they were when he left, but they're all standing in the uh, thing. And got, we allow you to get a letter from home. That's the kind of letters we got. Uh, I got one letter from Phyllis saying her dad had died, and, uh, um, and I only had really had two or three before... Uh, coming home, then they gave us a bunch of them all at one time, so we'd have something to carry out. We, uh, um, we, we didn't get any letters from anybody except family members. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, just one more thing. Just to finish up on that, uh, you saw the pictures of my shy little bride who was supposed to just stay barefoot and pregnant, standing on the pier, <laughs> waving goodbye as I sailed over the horizon. Um, um, my, my interrogation with this camp commander, I didn't have one of these things saying your wife is leaving you or anything, but he called me in there and said, according to you, what are your wife's activities? I said, well, how, how can I know? I don't get any mail. He says, ah, 
maybe that's why you get no mail. And I said, ha. So I, <laughs> so I, I didn't know what she was doing, but he didn't like it, so therefore I did. <laughs> anyway, well, ladies why, and gentlemen, thank you. Yeah, one more. Why did the uh, Johnson and Nixon administrations uh, suppress the information about the torture that was going on uh, in the North? Well, uh, I, not being a politician, I'm not sure. I know why the military didn't do it. Um, um, they, they knew about it right off the bat. I saw, before I got shot down, I was in Japan and at the officers' club, and all of a sudden I heard this American voice in the background. I looked up, and there's this, this American sitting there with the, the, those khaki POW clothes on, blinking his eyes like this. It was Jeremiah Denton blinking torture in Morse code, and um, uh, so we and we knew about it through intelligence. The military knew about it the whole time. The uh, I, I think the decision was made because they were afraid if they put the word out about torture, they torture everybody and, and kill somebody. We didn't see anything wrong. They told Phyllis and the wives just shut up and just keep quiet and just stand there and don't do anything. So uh, when she got up and started helping to mobilize Richmond and actually the whole country. Um, uh, uh, it was a, a big change from what what they were used to doing, and they didn't realize till we got home how how good that was for us that they were doing it. Because if the one there's one thing, the communists don't have anything at all in their societies, except what they create. There's these these uh, Potemkin villages of false fronts, and everything's hunky dory, and you know behind it it just festers. And um, the only thing they have is their publicity. In their public relations, their self-made public relations, and you, you get the one thing that gets Americans' attention is when a, when a bunch of little cuties go around and get on television, and, and everybody's paying attention to them. They're saying actually saying smart stuff, um, and got everybody's attention. So anyway, they decided this ain't so good. Ho Chi Minh died September of '69. Nobody, to my knowledge, was tortured after that. Thank you. <laughs>